listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 85. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with Keith Mitchell, former All-Pro NFL football player and yogi, to talk about his mindset that fueled his athletic journey and how adopting conscious breathing led him to a life of mindfulness. This elite athlete-turned-yogi shares an intimate story of his career-ending injury that gave him perspective, a new way to live, and a more mindful way of living. Hey, Keith, how are you? I'm well, Grant. How are you? Man, I'm feeling great. Man, my, uh, my day's going super well, and I feel really good right now, and I'm really excited to have you to get you on the show to talk about just your mindset as an athlete when you were a professional football player, just kind of hear your journey, what you went through, and then also really interested in, in hearing what you're doing now and how you transitioned out of professional football into being a, a master yogi and getting into mindfulness training. So I, I can't express how excited I am to have you on my show to talk about those things. Well, thanks so much for having me, and I can't wait to, to dive into some of this. It's going to be good stuff. All right. Well, let's talk about mental toughness, which is something that you have to have when you play the game of football. So what does mentally tough mean to you? Well, mentally tough to me is that you're going to have to be okay with adversity. You have to be okay with conflict uh, because that's what you're signing up for. I mean, that's what you realize the game is and it consists of. So you go in knowing that you're not going to be defeated mentally because once you're defeated mentally, uh, all everything else physically is going to fall away. So the mind has to have flexibility, has to have an expectation that it's going to be tough, it's going to be trying, but you've prepared yourself and you're ready for whatever comes your way. I love it. You know, when I, when I think about being mentally tough, I, I use this analogy or this image of conquering the emotional hurricane because when you're playing this game of football or any sport, there's an emotional hurricane that happens inside of you and outside of you. And the goal is to actually sit in the middle of the eye of the hurricane where it's calm and where you can actually get into the present and play present. And so, so you can be mentally tough to, you know, to handle chaos that's either happening inside of you or outside of you. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I think because, and, and what prepares us really is, and, and how it correlates to life even is that we prepare for the the breakdown. We prepare for the down and distance. We prepare for when we're uh, the two-minute warning, the goal line. We put ourselves in the compromised situations, and and so we're not just going into a cold turkey. Now, in life, we have this expectation of things that life is going to be smooth. You do, you get to for your degree, and, you get married, everything is going to be smooth, but then it doesn't play out like that. Right. <laughs> so, so I think I think that's where it kind of gets complicated. But that's also the opportunity to use that format that we use in sports and we apply it to life. Absolutely, and you bring up breakdown, and I, there's an awesome quote or statement that I've heard not too long ago: is that your breakthrough is is from your breakdown, and which I, I love it. You know, if things are going to break down. There's an opportunity, right? Opportunity with crisis, you know? So that's a great point, and I, and I love your perspective on that. Now, when we think about mental toughness, can you go back to a time in your career where you can share that moment where you were mentally tough, whether if it defined a certain game or it defined your career when you were mentally tough? 
Oh, man, you know, first I have to go back into when I was transitioning from college level to the pro level when I didn't get drafted. I was projected to be drafted. Uh, I was projected by Mel Kuyper, uh, first-round draft pick. And um, the draft goes through. And, and, you know, the seventh round actually happens. Uh, and Bill Cowher calls me, and he talks to me about, oh, well, son, I'm thinking about drafting you and another guy. And if he wouldn't have said, I'm thinking about drafting you, I probably would have went with Bill Cowher and the Pittsburgh Steelers at that time, but, but I didn't. And because I know who I am and I knew it, I was mentally under, I had a mentally understanding of myself and my talents. And, um, I knew I could play on that level. I knew I could play on the level that I, that I played in college and I, and I overachieved and I knew I could do it in the pros. And so I was mentally tough to, to, to recognize, okay, if I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go improve myself in the National Football League and show that I'm supposed to be here and I'm meant to be here. And Coach Dick had a call after the draft was over, and uh, he brought me into New Orleans, and the rest is history. Wow. What was it like getting that call from Dick? Oh, man, you know, because growing up in Texas, you know, uh, I had always, you know, admired the Cowboys, and, you know, Coach Dick was obviously a Cowboy tied in, and, and I, I, he was a tough guy, and I, and I just, you know, he had that reputation of being a tough guy. And I was like, well, you know what? I think I'm tough, too. <laughs> and uh, I think if I can play for that guy, I can surely play for anybody else. And uh, sure enough, uh, he, he, he brought me in, and actually I became a starter uh, as an undrafted rookie free agent. And that was pretty rare at those times in 97 when I came in. And uh, and now it's more of a norm now, but in the time that I was coming in, uh, I, I think I took over a guy's position who was making about $3 million, and that's typically not the norm when a team has that kind of investment in a player. But uh, sure enough, Coach Dicker, you know, gave me my shot, and, and I took it from there. Wow, that's awesome, man. Now, I know you just shared um, a mental toughness moment, but when you when you reflect on your whole collegiate and professional career, what was like while you were playing? What was the biggest mental win, and what was your biggest mental fail? Uh, the mental win, I think, just <clears throat> you know, being on that level, being on that field, uh, whether it be uh, the field of, of high school when you're the starter, college level when you have like I went to Texas A&M, with, you know, we had a tradition of of just winning. We were known as linebacker you to be a parade All-American to accomplish that, to be on that field in, in, on Cal Field or to be in the Superdome, you know, uh, and to be a starter on the field on that level. I mean, you have to, you know, realize like, oh, wow, I'm here. I, 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 I proved them wrong. I, you know, I'm not only here, I'm dominating. It's like to, to realize that moment, uh, I think for me was the greatest accomplishment mentally you know you know yeah of, of all yeah and so now the disappointment and the loss and, or things like that or i think the alternate to your question um i don't really know if i have that maybe maybe when i was injured uh, that's i think that's i would probably have to say when i was injured and i was like you know flat on my back and and i had never been in that position and Maybe that was when I had thought that I had failed, I guess, mentally. But uh, obviously that was not the case. This is part of the 
the journey of playing a, a contact sport such as football. How would you describe your mindset or your style of play when you played football? Um, you know, I had a fascination with the highlight reel. Uh, and I think it was when I was going through the recruiting stage at uh, Texas A&M, I had saw, and I had been going to other colleges too, and I thought it was just so cool that the highlights, and, and they would put the music to it, and I just I said, man, I want to make the highlight reel, you know? <laughs> and I, I think, so my approach to uh, the game was like, how can I make big plays? I wanted to make, you know, the, the exceptional plays, the, the plays that turn the game around. Uh, and, and I got really off on that. It was just like my, you know, I wasn't, you know, even as a linebacker, you think, you know, we're, we're the tough guys. I think I was tough to a point, but I wasn't trying to just try to, you know, battle with the blocker all day. I used to tell the fullback, I don't get paid to hit you. I get paid to make tackles. So, you know, so <laughs> my thing was, how can I make the big plays? Right. <laughs> Now, yeah. as, as awesome with the motivation with, you know, being on highlight films, you know, and, and, and I know that as an athlete, you know, motivation changes. Uh, did your motivation from high school to A&M to the NFL, like, was your motivation still the same? Was it the same motivator or did it change over time? It did change over time uh, as I got, you know, became more of a veteran in the in the league and, you know, it changed. It was more like I knew, you know, what I had to do. And, and it was like, uh, they were all different. I, I could see the game different. I think the, the thing that I needed to challenge myself on is like uh, staying motivated to play in the game because, you know, to, to hit people for a living is like, it takes an exceptional type of person to really just be into it every day, day in, day out, <laughs> you know? Right. Yep. And like I said before, I wanted to make the highlight reel. I didn't want to just sit there and battle with the, the fullbacks and the, and the O-linemen all day. But, um, so it was just those little things that I had to do to just really kind of find motivation to, to stay in the game mentally. Um, and, and that's what I did. Uh, I did the best I could anyway. Uh, but I think that would be the most challenging thing because, again, the violence and to to be excited about it day in, day out. It's like, and I played for some really hard coaches, like, you know. Uh, so we, we were physical, you know, physical uh, all week long. And then it's, I, I think the game was played for us on the weekday. Right. <laughs> and then the weekend was like the more of a relaxation, it seemed. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, so... I think that was the thing to stay motivated to play the violent game and finding ways to, you know, to stay inspired with it, you know? Definitely. Yeah, and I know I, I played on the other side of the ball where guys like you wanted to tackle me and eat me for lunch, but still like within my position, I was playing a violent game and, uh, and I had to deal with, you know, I had to, I had to do certain things, even though I was a quarterback, but there's a lot of there's a lot of stress and pressure you have to deal with as a quarterback, and so to play that violent game with all that pressure, I had to I had to keep myself motivated. I played football for 13 years, so but it got to a point where I I just wasn't having fun anymore. And um, but we'll talk about that, you know, kind of the end of your career and, and kind of how you transitioned out. But I'm I'm actually curious about maybe your what I call the switch. So. Did you have a switch where you, when you went to go practice or when you played, 
what did you turn into? Because you, you have these athletes in, in professional sports like Kobe Bryant. His alter ego is the Black Mamba. And he literally gets into the Mamba mentality. You got Jerome Bettis, you know, the bus. He gets into that when he's running the ball. He's, he's like, he literally feels like he's a bus. You got Jake the Snake, right? Jake Plummer, who I was talking about. He, was, he gets into that persona. Did you have any kind of switch or persona that you kind of got into to play this game? Well, you know, first I learned about the switch when I was in high school and I started playing football like my freshman year in high school. My parents wouldn't let me play until that time. And I had a coach when they took me uh, and, and put me on the defensive end. I was I came in they wanted me to play defensive end. I had a coach named Coach Anderson who knew how to or he realized how to push my button. And... Um, and then I realized the switch. He talked about the switch. And what I realized about the switch from an early age as a 14-year-old freshman in high school, that I realized the higher you go, the less and less you can turn that switch off mm-hmm. because of the competitiveness of the game. So when you find yourself, what, you really, what I'm trying to say is that you find yourself in a character, you find yourself in a role, uh, because the idea of ego really doesn't exist. It's still you. And it's just taking responsibility of that you. So you find yourself, the higher you go at that level of competitiveness, you have to stay in that role. Yeah, that's, you know, such a great point. It, it is, and I, I see this, I've seen this a lot um, at the elite level for with football, football players, but also, like, when you think of another sport that's violent, um, UFC, MMA, and... What's dangerous is that, and it's our responsibility as athletes to t- switch on, turn on, let go of who we are, and turn into this warrior, you know, adopt this warrior mindset. Then we have to be responsible how to turn it off. And I think it's really relevant what you were saying, that the higher you go, man, it's you've you got to really live that switch, and you got to be really responsible how to turn it off. Exactly. Uh, it's just saying, I'm from Texas, so we got to say, say some of these country cliches, but you can't, when you teach a dog how to bite, well, you can't be mad when the dog bites you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good one. I like yeah. that one. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's been multiple times throughout your career where you've experienced uh, being in flow state or being in the zone. And I think you know, being an athlete and being a coach, I think the two best things, the most beautiful things that you can experience besides winning a championship is being in, in flow or zone. Can you share a time where that moment where you were just so locked in, every, you didn't even know what you were doing, but you're doing everything right and your body, would, you were just, your body was trusting you and you were just lighting it up and you were in the zone? Oh, yeah, many times uh, just playing the, the best game of your life. You know, we have this saying on defense that uh, big plays come in twos and threes and things like that. Uh, it's just, and, and sure enough, it's like you believe something. You're, you're speaking something to an existence. I was, I, I was playing New England one year, I think my second year, and I, had just, I just knew that they were going to try to isolate me on the backside, and I visualized the play happening, that I was going to inter- intercept the ball, I was going to run about 50 yards for a touchdown. And, you know, it's like you put it out there and you believe it's going to happen. And I think there's a real power that it does come your way. And sure enough, that happened. Uh, Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback at that time. Uh, but, you know, 
the flow state is, is one of those things that you, you know what you're doing. You don't overthink it. You're just flowing. It's like the crowd sound, the noises. You, just, you don't hear any of it. And you're just like kind of, you follow your keys and you trust in your keys and you, and you execute. There's no good. There's no bad. You, you, you take chances. Everything is not like appropriate in the sense of like, you know, the gap and where I'm supposed to sit. Sometimes I'm, 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 overstepping the gap I'm, I'm jumping beyond the gap I'm, uh, you know, I'm not even starting up where I'm supposed to be positioned yet you know it's like these things are happening but you just feel it you just you're just being guided by something intuition maybe um, that you know where the ball is going and you're going to be there to execute and make the play so and that's a beautiful place to be and uh, I've enjoyed that flow state and I try to live that flow state in my life uh, now for sure, and and it's it's a beautiful like whether in sport, whether in life or in relationships, being in flow is just a, it's it's just a beautiful place to be. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we start talking about what you're doing today. But you know, you brought up it's so funny you brought up Drew Bledsoe because I wish I would have known because uh, I had him on my show a little bit of last year, and uh, also had him on a part of my book. He was a testimonial, so. That's great that you had that uh, that flow state moment against him or with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I never liked the New England Patriots, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, I, and I and I think probably because of Belichick. I met Belichick when uh, pro day. He was coming to Texas A&M uh, since my sophomore year. He just had a very arrogance about him, and then it's well deserved at this point. Again, I guess that character, you know, the higher you go, the more you consider the guru, the more you have to be in character. But uh, he just had that arrogance about him, and I just, you know, every time I played him, I just wanted to beat him. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, and I won't say who said it, but there was a person um, that had said, you know, if you want to go play for someone what was it? Um, if you want to go play for someone that's a, a robot that wins, then go play for that. And I was like, wow. Because he's, he's very much yeah. systematical, everything he does, um, with, with hardly any emotion. <laughs> but, he's a, but he's a good coach. You can't take it away from him. But, you know, in, in theory, uh, he's, not, he's not wrong for it. Because it, it's like, are you talking about a pro state? Well, if you stay in that even kill, well, then there's no good, there's no bad. Right. You know, and so, but what happens if you choose one? Well, as soon as I claim a good, well, then I'm actually claiming the bad coming hereafter. Yep. But if I stay in that in that zone, that even, it's like, well, I'm I'm immune to both. Yeah. And I and I realize we all go together. So it's pretty interesting, and you know, so in theory, he's not wrong. Right. No, that's that's a great point for sure. Absolutely. You know, there's a quote. Uh, your quote, actually. Um, that I, I saw on your website, and the quote reads, my way of expressing myself was on the gridiron. I had anger and hurt, and it affected my life outside of sports. You can have greatness without chaos. Allow your greatness to happen. You have the capability of greatness within you. And I kind of want to, like, break this down a little bit because I, you know, you have a couple words in here that stick out. I had anger and hurt. What was that anger and hurt? And do you think it is good to play sports or actually the game of football with anger? Well, wow, that's a that's a really good question on the on the second end. Uh, I think the first part of that is that as a as a male, 
you know, uh, we're taught to be tough. And we, we don't really get the expression time of feeling anything beyond toughness. It's like, suck it up, be a big boy. Right. You know, you got to be like this and you're being compared to someone and that you're not this and you're not like your father or whatever it is. Like, you know, so you're trying to always live up to this expectation. And, and then so naturally unanswered questions lead you naturally to frustration. So you're just kind of born into a situation of, of just frustration because what is it? What am I supposed to be and how can I do it right? And so now you get an opportunity to put and express yourself on a field and they say, well, this is going to make you seem tough to the people. This is what's going to be. This is what men do. So you go out and write, okay, all that frustration that you, you know, had wrapped up inside of you, well, now you've got a place that you can just get it all out. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, it becomes a therapy. It's like the graphic, really, or the output is the person who's been through the most pain, you know? And, and, and then so now you've got this place where you can just be expressive, not, not just on the field, but in the locker room. You can just throw your weight around and be the alpha and be revered as the alpha. And, and you feel like, oh, I'm at home. <laughs> you know, this is this is this is how we're supposed to be, man. You know, tough guy. You know, so right. it's a it's an obviously an, an illusion, but it's, it's a miseducation that we're not getting, or the young men are not getting, um, as we're born into the world to to have someone to talk to about our interpretation of what all this means and, and make sense of it. We're not getting that. So I think it's kind of a, a little bit of all that wrapped up into one. Yeah. You know, you make you make a great point. And, and you know, I'm going to get a little vulnerable here and, and in a little bit um, detailed. But it's funny when you think about this day and age, you know, that whole I call it an old mindset where, you know, be a man. And what do you mean vulnerability? Because like, vulnerability is something that it's, it's a word we're, we're hearing a lot these days and have been. And I believe in it, and I teach all my athletes to be vulnerable and have them understand what it means to be vulnerable as a person, but how to be vulnerable with your play. And it's really, I had this most incredible, and I think you would enjoy this, but this most incredible experience years ago when I was coaching football. And there was a, there was a defensive player that just was not doing well. And he was actually playing the team that he actually transferred from. And so what he was doing, he was getting out of focus. He was listening to his friends on the sideline, coaches he used to play for, also people in the stands. And he was just, he was not doing well. He was just basically just getting beat on every route. And so as I got him, uh, probably a little bit in the third quarter, I got him on the sideline and he's emotional. He's about to cry. I wouldn't let him talk to me until he got into his breath got into his breath, started sharing with me like what he was feeling like, like what was going through his mind. So I got him to focus on the things he can't control because all the stuff that was getting him out of focus was stuff that was out of his control. And so long story short, you know, we ended up barely losing that game. He, you know, he has his time with himself over the weekend. And I meet with him on Monday and uh, and I asked him, I said, hey man, how how you doing? He's like, you know, you've had a couple of days to... to think about the game and it was just crazy like here's a 17 year old kid and he sits there and he looks at me and he goes I don't know what to say to you or how to put it in words but I was sitting in I was sitting by myself all weekend long and I don't know what it is but I just feel feminine and I'm like okay 
So here I'm at a, as a coach going, okay, let, do I go there with him on this? And I said, okay, so what does it, what does it mean to be feminine? And he was just like, I don't know. I don't know. And I said, can I help you with a word? Because this, this word we hear a lot in football and we just hear it in society. I go, does the word pussy come up to mind? And he goes, yeah, that's what I feel like. I said, okay, so let's reframe that. Really, when we think about a pussy, how actually weak is a pussy? And he looked at me, and, I was, and it, was, it was one of those eye-opening like, opportunities for him to go, what is coach actually allowing me to look at differently? And I said, do you know how strong? If you really think about that, the organ, it birthed you and me, right? Do you realize how strong it is? So when anybody calls you a pussy or you call yourself that, you got to reframe that and know that it's a strong thing, not a weak thing. And he was, he looked at me like, whoa. And it was so great because, and I'm sorry if I'm using, you know, to my listeners, I'm using some of this language, but there's a great point to it because later in the season, I remember going up to this athlete right before a game and I'm all, hey man, how you feeling? Because I do that to all my players. And he goes, man, I feel like a strong pussy. And it was just, it was funny, but it was for him to actually get it. Like that word didn't have a negative connotation anymore to him. And he understood what, is, what it was like to be vulnerable, to get to that, to that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in my book, I talk about the first chapter is to find your words. A lot of words have been defined for us and a lot of words carry weight. And, and I'm using this in particular because when you're talking about our emotional response or our emotional uh, behavioral patterns are all interlaced by these words, by the small, uh, you know, glossary of words that we use that don't really relate to us specifically. And uh, so I'm suggesting to the person to uh, create your own vocabulary around the words that you use and get the people that, are, that you engage with uh, consistently on code to how you use it. That's how you really begin to get clear communication. This is why every team has their their vocabulary to how they suggest formations are and et cetera, so they can communicate when the game is on the line. So that makes so much sense to me uh, in, in theory and principle, uh, and it just shows how limited we are uh, with our vocabulary and how we express it and so forth. And just to feel like, you know, the femininity and understanding what the femininity is. But the reality of a game like football, even, you know, probably, uh, you know, 20% is brute force uh, and 80% is going to be finesse. That's femininity. You have, you, you're, you're able to play four quarters because you're finesse. And if you have to build brute strength the whole nine. Well, you wouldn't make it to the fourth quarter. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's, that's a great analogy. It's funny, and uh, I'm glad you were able to connect. I'm glad the kid was able to receive the message as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it can be a touchy spot, you know, to kind of play in and talk, you know, especially with younger athletes. But, you know, I, I feel like, you know, as coaches, we're here to shape young men and to build them. And And, you know, if I can actually – allow someone to, to see things differently, be vulnerable, understand that we do have two sides. We, we, we are masculine and we are feminine. We just have that and we can't deny that. So, but we have to understand it. So I just thought it was just a great opportunity to, to kind of show up in the moment for them. Yeah, I think so as well. And I think each stage is able to, to, to expand your awareness. I think each game, each like from high school, college, to the pros, I mean, to see the, the greater part of the field 
I think the vision does change on each level. And the better you're able to adapt to getting broader vision, the better effective you'll be on each level. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, when uh, a couple questions before we get into what you're doing now and, and your transition into into mindfulness practice and, and being a yogi. When you think about the way you mentally prepared for games, what was your routine? What were some of the things that you did on game day to get you mentally prepared? Uh, just, you know, focus. Uh, you know, one big component was the fuel. You know, I needed the fuel in my body, I felt. And so I would consume as much food as possible. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a regiment of, you know, the, the cold plunge to, to, you know, getting my legs back together, uh, re- recovery-wise. And um, I had that kind of going. I had a regiment of, of, of prayer because uh, I was raised in the church. My father's a preacher, so I had that whole regimen, uh, which now that I think about it, I also talk about this. You know, if I'm praying for the win and they're praying for the win, well, who's God going to give the win to? <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, you know, so I had my residence like that, and, um, you know, and it made me feel uh, mentally like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. Um, and I think everybody kind of, uh, does and have their own typical regimen too. I, I think it's funny. I think it's interesting, but it just shows you how the mind has so much control of the process and of the process and how you feel about the execution. So sometimes if I didn't get to do everything that I wanted to do or typically done, well, then I would feel myself being a little bit off, you know? Right. And um, yeah, so it's very interesting those rituals yeah it's it's uh it's like it's routine ritual or does it turn into a superstition and and it's funny because i i mean when i got when i was getting ready i had something similar my process was similar to yours but it was man when i got done with you know i did my prayers in the corner of the uh, the locker room it was always a corner of a locker room every time i put on my clothes i'd put them on a certain way every time but it was when I put my towel right, right, right in front. When I when I hung that towel on me as a quarterback, it was like music came on. The Rocky song came on. I was like, "This is it. This is where my switch came on." You know, for the most part. And and I've as I've had a lot of people on my show to talk about, you know, the routines and their superstitions. You know, one that's kind of interesting and funny. Um, and I'm sure you can, we all can kind of talk about kickers, which are very vital to a team, but I had Jeff Reed on my, on my show and who played for the Steelers not too long ago and two time, uh, Super Bowl champion. And he was saying that his superstition or his routine is that he would always put on a brand new sock going into the game and that, and that every halftime he would actually put on another brand new sock on his kicking foot. Because it was like a new game, a new fresh foot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. and I'm sure there's a lot other other you know funny and crazy ones out there too. Oh man, yeah, it, it is. I saw a lot of them. <laughs> you know, it, it's just what you put. Like you know, they're saying is what you put the intention to, attention to will grow. Uh, and, and a lot of these things we have been doing since like day one. And so if you're in your 13th, 14th, 
you know, you're playing this game where these things grow and we get more, the more success we have, the more into these things that we do because we feel that these things we're doing is helping to create success over here. So, um, it's, it's, the, it's the issue we have to deal with when we talk about belief and superstition. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Now, like me, I was forced out of the game due to a career-ending injury. Can you share with my listeners about your career-ending injury and, and what it did to you as a, an individual and how you transitioned out of football? Oh, yeah. You know, actually, you know, you just made me think about Bledsoe and how Drew Bledsoe has been pivotal because he was actually in Buffalo. Oh, wow. <laughs> <When this happened. laughs> I'm reading Drew Bledsoe again. Um yeah, and, and I just thought, I knew they were trying to isolate me with Travis Henry on the back end. Um, and, uh, I'm just, again, I'm trying to pick him off to make a good play, a big play again. Uh, and uh, on this particular play, I ended up making a tackle instead. Uh, and the collision uh, happened. I ended up on my back. And, uh, I'm you know, I'm, I'm trying to get up. And my body's not responding and you know, this is, you know, after doing this, you know, thousands of times in my life and, and having this feeling as I'm on my back and, you know, it's like my body's like, it's not moving. I'm like telling myself, keep it up now, you know, like, come on, let's go. <laughs> my body is just there. It's just numb. And, um, I was diagnosed with a spinal contusion. I suffered paralysis for about uh, a month. Um, the whole right side of my body was just completely numb and um and you know i didn't know what was going on with my body the doctors you know didn't really know what was going on but the doctors have the answers but when they don't have the answers what they really do so you know i was just there and um luckily for me i i learned uh, to use breath as a tool and uh and that really changed my my demeanor changed my mindset because uh because when i you know i was always kind of geared to give me the playbook and let me execute. So for me, conscious breathing was my playbook and I could participate in my healing. I just didn't have to sit there and be the victim. And, um, which is a very interesting question when you think about it, right? Cause, uh, what happens when you breathe? And most people have never asked the question. It never really dawns on people's minds what happens when they breathe. And if they can't conceptualize it, then they can't be used as a tool. You know, it's like anything in sports, you know, like your speed, your stiff arm, and you know, the things like that. But now you've got a tool. Now you can use it. You can implement it when the game is on the line. And for me, the game was on the line, and um, I really tapped into that. You know, it's it's beautiful that you said that. And I think it's, to me, it, it connects and it resonates because with my hip injury that lasted me for almost two decades and left me after my first first hip replacement, it left me handicapped for about four years. And I didn't have, I didn't really adopt any meditation, any breath work, none of that until I going into my second, my second surgery. And it was really a beautiful thing that my coach or that my doctor said, he goes, we're going to do a special procedure, but I want you to spend six to nine months to get you ready so we can get you out of this situation running, no pun intended. And so basically, I got I adopted breath, breath work, intentional work, meditation. I started losing all my weight. But what was really happening for almost two decades, that because I wasn't in my breath, what I was doing, I was always thinking about what I used to be and what I couldn't be. 
and I couldn't, I never got into the moment, this present moment. And when I started getting to my breath and I started doing some intentional work, I started to realize that's when I'm the most alive, when I'm in my breath. And whether if I can't walk right or I don't have half my body, I'm most alive in this moment when I get into my breath. It was, I like that. I yeah, like man. That. It was like, it was eye-opening. And then, and then I've had so many situations in my life where breath has not only saved me in a situation, but it, it's actually saved my life because I've had that relationship with my breath. Yeah. Well, you know, like if I were to go into it and uh, just add a little bit to that, so a short breath is reactive breath. You know, uh, a long breath is a contemplative breath, right? And on, a, on and from a physiological aspect, now, when you breathe from the belly, the diaphragm pushes up, and on the exhale, it pushes down. So on the inhale, it pushes up, on the exhale, it pushes down. We take about 10,000 breaths a day. So with that being said, uh, we get an opportunity to massage internal organs that begin to be stagnant over time. Certain parts of the body begins to be stagnant over time. So now we're helping the body uh, circulate nutrition, I like to call inflammation. So blood flow is circulating in stagnant places and creates movement. So when you have blood flow, now you have an activation. So what happens is we begin to limit our movement from when we were in our prime being an athlete, and these areas get stagnant, so the blood flow gets less and less. So, they, so it lacks the opportunity to have this experience with the rehabilitation. Wow. Keep going, man. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is. And, you know, it's so funny because I, I've studied so much of breath, and, and there's just so much more to learn about it, even though that we're doing it right now. And um, so it was actually really awesome to, to hear your your point of view and your per- perspective of it. So thank you for that, for sure. How did you, like, as you got into this conscious breathing, what was the segue? What was the connection to kind of kind of move towards and gravitate towards mindfulness training and meditation and yoga? Well, I simply just started reflecting. Like I said, the deeper breath begins to contemplate. So now contemplation takes you through uh, your experiences. You begin to think about your experience in this life. Like you start to think about why you did certain things, how you lived, how you showed up. It's kind of like film study, you know, speaking of sports. You kind of get to replay yourself and you see how you showed up. And now, and then you begin to see like relationships, like I saw relationships with my parents and how I said I loved them, but then they didn't really know who I was, and I didn't really know who they were, because we really never had in-depth conversations with each other. It was just a basic formality. And uh, I realized in those places of contemplation that I wanted more. And and it was solely about how can I create more substance out of my life, more intentionality instead of randomness in my life. Mm. And uh, that began to be my blueprint, really, because... Uh, the initial wasn't about mindfulness. It wasn't about sharing it with the world. It was just trying to heal myself. But I, be- I began to believe there's a saying in the esoteric realm is once you go in, uh, it naturally will take you out again because internally you don't exist alone. You know, it's like trying to describe the circle, uh, the inner circle without the outer circle and the outer circle without the inner circle. We all go together. So my presumed issues, problems are not just mine alone. They exist in the world. 
And as I began to change those dynamics within my own life, it naturally took me out into the world. And I began to see the paralysis of other people. It wasn't the extreme that I was on the field, but it was the paralysis of just expressing themselves, the paralysis of being vulnerable. And as we know, without vulnerability, you cannot have connection. And the idea is we're here as humans to have an experience, and we thrive through connection. But uh, for various reasons, the trauma and things that we've kind of compartmentalized in our bodies, it won't allow it. So I began to see the need that I was feeling fulfilling in my own life, and I began to see how it could help others uh, relieve their issues in their lives, and it just made so much sense. It felt right. You know, it just dawned on me as you're speaking, which is incredible. I love hearing what you're saying. But does it ever trip you out when you look, when you kind of reflect about who you were as a football player and how how violent of a game that you played, how vicious and tenacious you had to be physically and mentally to play that game? And now you're you're pretty much the exact opposite, um, doing mindfulness training, breathing, conscious breathing, meditation, yoga. It's like on the other other side of the sh- the sphere. Does does it ever? Do you ever trip out on that, that that used to be you and now you're a completely different person? Oh, man, all the time. Everywhere I go, it seems like, because I'm usually in those big markets, like I was just in New Jersey and I was tell, I was like, I'm here to tell you about love. And, and just a couple of years ago, I used to be here trying to hunt down Eli Manning and try to kill him. <laughs> 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 so it's like, it is a, it is a very interesting uh, change, but that lets us know that transformation is possible. Yep. Right? So just like your life, you know, uh, doing that same dynamic. And, and then now, you know, 360, that, that gives us hope. So now when I look at my father, I look at my mother, I look at the people close to me. I can, well, I know that's possible for them as well, because why it's possible, it shows up in my life now. So again, I use that as inspiration as when I look at the, those, I look at those hard cases of, of people like to say, this is going to be a hard one. And now I can make my father, I can introduce my father into veganism. And now he can be a vegan. My mother's a vegan. My sister's a vegan. You know, I'm a vegan. Things like that. These things just begin to trickle down. It's just like the discovery is just fascinating. And again, it gives me hope about humanity. It gives me hope about doing and excitement about doing what I do and doing the things and seeing people like you even do what you do. So it's just a great discovery and a truth to what we're up to. Absolutely. And you know, when I, when I reflect on my life and I'm glad I went through shit, I'm glad I went through, my, my adversity lasted almost two decades. I'm glad on the failures because it's, I'm not here. My, my energy is my offering. The reason why I'm here is to share my story. It's not all about me and there's lessons in all of our stories. And if I can share that and you can share it, um, yeah, I used to be a completely per- different person back in the day. I was very ego-driven. I was very motivated by external things. I wasn't motivated intrinsically. And now it's like it's totally shifted. And so it's just beautiful that both you and I can be in a position where we can share the story and, and, and just share love and, sh- and share joy. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and by, you know, you being who you were, it's like it kind of creates a credibility in a sense to that man who doesn't see it possible, doesn't see it in himself possible. But how we can convince him is because, hey, you live that life. I live that life. Yeah. And then they'll accept it a little different in a different life. And they're like, wow, okay, that person 
considered, then they can mirror that and do it for themselves. And it's just been so beautiful, like I said, to see some of my former teammates uh, come onto some of my classes and, and, and take in some of the things, that, the, you know, the message that we speak about. And uh, it's just so cool to see. Uh, and it also, again, it gives me, that's the things that gives me, gets me excited the most to go forward into the future and to see what else is going to be possible, meeting you uh, and seeing what you're up to and how you grow and expand and how all these different things of men ex- extending it back to other men to show them, hey, we can keep the manliness, but now let's add some of this other stuff to it as well to kind of balance it and um, and what the paradigm and what the, the shift can look like after that. It, yeah. it can be pretty profound, I believe. Totally, man. There's, I, I love talking about the shift. It's a beautiful thing. Just got to be ready for it and open for it, and um, it's awesome. Now, a couple questions before we, we start to sign off here. I know that there's a lot of different, um, I don't know if the right word is styles, but varieties of yoga. What, what, what style do you focus on, and what kind of meditation do you focus on? Well, the style of yoga, now think of yoga as just as a word union. Sometimes we can get stuck on the, you know, how we've seen it through propaganda exposed as yoga, but yoga is just union. The mind, the body, the breath coming together to experience itself. And so it's just different movements uh, and you really get to listen to yourself. You know, the body speaks through sensation. It doesn't have a mouthpiece, so it can't speak to you. So you have to hear it, hear what it says and listen to it and then breathe uh, the nourishment to it, you know. And that's some that's relating to self, you know. I didn't really realize the relationship existed with myself until I started my practice. And that was around the age of 32 or 33 or so. So it begins to really help engage compassion, patience, all these different things that we want from others that we don't typically extend to ourselves. Now, meditation, how I look at meditation is contemplation. It's all problems are solved through questioning and answering. So you begin to ask yourself the question, like say, if the question would be, what do you desire? And then through not just the formality of answering the question of saying, I desire this, but you also get an opportunity to contemplate your actions to getting to what you desire. And a lot of times our words are different than our actions. So we get to contemplate that. And in this sense, there's no good or no bad. It just is. And we get to play off, okay, my actions. Now I need to adjust my actions to get to truly get to what I say I want. So now you're you're the guru. You're the person that you're responsible for. And you only have one person to answer to is yourself. And you can see through your through your practice, how is it helping you go from A to B to C and D and so forth? And that's the practice that I teach. Wow, I love it. I love it. You know, and, and I'm gonna I know you're I'm gonna give you some space to talk about where people can follow you, but I'm just gonna say it right now that to my listeners, there's there's a lot of content that you can follow Keith also on his website if you wanna if you wanna download any of his his meditations. Um they're there, so you firsthand understand like how he does it and what it sounds like and, and the value of it. So I, I encourage you to check that out. But I'll have Keith talk about that a little bit towards the end. Um, but I do want to talk about your book. Your book is coming out early next year, and it's called The Mindfulness Playbook. Tell me a little bit about it, and what was the drive of writing this book? Well, you know, I have been seeing a lot of people uh, come to me, and they talk about, well, I don't know how to meditate, you know. And so... 
And like how I was wired and how it seems you were wired as well is like, let's get the playbook out. Let's execute through the playbook. We set a parameters down and we'll follow suit, right? Yep. And so I was like, well, let's put a playbook together. You know, so now we got to get the verbiage because, you know, the verbiage is for like when, when you got 80,000 in the stand and they're yelling and you can't hear anything. So we got to communicate. So we got to be able to communicate with ourselves. We got to communicate with people that in our circle. And so yeah, we've got to redefine a lot of these words because a lot of the words are defined for us. So it's like we begin to go down the line of all human activity and begin to scale it for how we want to show up in the world and how we want to be in this world. And so I put together a blueprint uh, of how I've created that for myself, but also offer, uh, offer space that you can create it for yourself and you can follow your own blueprint your own game plan for when your game is on the line, as it always is, right? Every day is life-changing events happening, and uh, so we can make the best choices, decisions uh, for the life that we choose to live in the, in the world. So, and it's eight, eight strategies at winning at the game of life because it is a game, and uh, and we want to participate. So, in all aspects, we we are to experience this life, and I want us to excel. And because when you excel, I excel with this mindset because you. You are, it's like you're saying, I am because you are, therefore I am. Right. <laughs> so we all work together. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, you, br- you brought up the word game because some people like, they don't, oh, my life's not a game. To me, this is what one of my takeaways when I had a, when I re-engineered and redesigned myself after my second uh, hip replacement, I literally have, I wasn't playing a big game for almost two decades and I've spent my whole youth and collegiate years playing a big game and I turned it off and now I'm I'm playing a big game and when I'm playing it and I know that I'm in it I want to play it bigger and and that doesn't mean like consuming stuff and you know sure wealth but what what's wealth does it have to be money can it be relationships can it be giving and receiving energy that's that's the kind of game I'm talking about so I love it that you brought up the word game yeah yeah yeah, it, it is. It, it it makes so much sense to me, and um, and you know, it's it's it just put it in a in a context that we can make tangible. I think a lot of times the esoteric verbiage is so uh, not tangible. Like, how does this relate to me in my life right now? So it puts in a perspective. Uh, not 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 as quite like the one you showed with share with me with the kid. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it does put it in a perspective that, you know, it's is more tangible. So uh so if it's tangible, we can attack it, we can see it and we can live it. Absolutely. For sure. So one more question here. When you reflect when you reflect on your whole career as an athlete and also as now as a yogi, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Uh, wow, that's a good one. Uh, what I mostly learned about myself, I knew I was, I was resilient. I knew I was, you know, I had a strong will, strong mind. Uh, I just, what I realized the most in this experience is, I think I'm learning every day, is the heart. And, and that you can't walk this walk, live this life without being all about it like you have to do this work from the heart you can't put on a show with this you know as you may know already i mean we it's like you come to a point of life and you've done it one way and you realize that that didn't serve you and and we're here to really engage and connect and to really love you know and and i think i've been on the pursuit of 
you know, really, I did all those things around the world to just come back to this one place of just wanting love, acceptance, and all these just basic principles of life. And, and I think that's the most fulfilling thing for me to know that I can share something with someone and it can help uh, shift their lives that they live a better life, you know. And my message to my son would be no different than the message to your son. You know, it's like I, the, the love is consistent. There's no really changing of the words. It's just, it's just one message. And um, I think that's just been a beautiful discovery of just seeing myself uh, being okay with that, you know, and, uh, and being driven by that, just the, the, the excitement of connecting with people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I love it that you bring up heart real quick because a lot of, you know, right now we, I think a lot of times we forget about the heart. We talk about the brain, the mindset, neuroscience, you know, kinesiology, the the body, physicality. We and but we we forget about the heart. And I think whether if you're coaching an athlete, whether if you're managing somebody in the workplace, we've got to get to the heart. We've we've got to manage the heart. We've got to coach the heart. We got to love the heart. And I mean that if that thing is, I know the brain works and and controls everything, but the heart is very vital and. I think it's cool that you bring it up because I think we need to pay attention to our own heart, our own energy that comes from it, and then how we can actually, you know, assist or support or love or coach other people's hearts. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I believe that's why we have a lot of symptoms of high blood pressure and, and, and a lot of things happening with the heart, lack of circulation, um, you know, things like that. Because, um, you know, we're here to experience life and, and we're here to, again, um, connect to people. Um, and unfortunately, just the traumas that we've, you know, we've engaged with experience, uh, we haven't learned or we would never learn how to re- release those traumas. And now we're suggesting, you and I are suggesting ways that people can speak about it through vulnerability to release it, uh, sharing yoga, meditation, contemplation, uh, things like that. And we're learning those things for the first time in a lot of cases. And so those things begin to decompress the heart and, uh, and allow people the space. It's like we're creating space in the heart so we can love again, rebuild itself again. Yeah. So um, that's, that's as, as deep as it really is going, you know. So, <laughs> I love it, man. Uh, so. I, I love it. That was, I've never, I, I understand creating space emotionally, but, I, but when it comes to creating space for your heart and creating space to love yourself and others, that's deep. I like that very much. Yeah. So stuff, how can I, how can my listeners follow you on social media? How can they follow you on your website? And also when it's ready, uh, your book, you know, where can they buy your book? Yes. Uh, my Instagram, my Facebook is Keith Mitchell 59. Uh, send me messages. Um, I, I love to respond to, uh, best I can, uh, you know, my website is keithmitchell59.com, keithmitchellmindfulness.com. Uh, people are pre-ordering the book now. It's going to be out first quarter. Um, I'm so excited about it. It's, you know, really got some really insight and tools on some things that you can implement really easy in your life. And uh, I think it can create the shifts that you want in your life to change. Um, and, yeah, send me messages, send me emails. Uh, we're touring a lot. I, I, I travel a lot to different places and love to keep you on track up to speed what we're up to in the places we're going. I, I do a lot throughout the communities. And so I'm, I look forward to seeing you on my 
on my journey and on yours. Man, I love it. Man, it's, uh, you know, Keith, thank you for sharing your journey, sharing your mindset, sharing your energy, and sharing what you're doing right now. I think uh, there's people like you that make this world special, and um, and I'm, I'm really honored to have you on, the, on my show and just kind of sharing your energy. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a good one.